Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. All the time, she says, I don't agree with your interpretation of that text. And he says, I didn't interpret the text, I read it. That's uh, basically... If you've ever quoted scripture to anybody, um, immediately, you know, they think that you're, you're judging them or, or whatever, and, and oftentimes they want to argue against what you're saying, and the point is I'm just reading the text. I'm, we're just studying the text. So today, uh, if you guys are visiting, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Um, just so you know, the way we roll around here is... Um, We, on Father's Day, on Mother's Day, whatever, very seldom do we, uh, do we move away from our text that we're in, in our, in the book that we study. We, we study uh, and and preach expositorily, verse by verse, through, through the book. And so today we're just continuing on. And so uh, the subject matter today was fortuitous in that it's, it's, uh, it's about men and women. It's about husbands and wives. It's, uh, uh, but it's one of those kind of texts where, Uh, People will be and can get very upset about it. And the point is, what we like to do is drill down uh, to the best of our ability and exposit Scripture and draw from the Scripture the actual meaning, the the proper interpretation of the text. So if you would stand with me, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2, and we're going to go on through to verse 16. This is the Word of God. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying shames his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut short. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short on her head or her head be shaved, let her cover her head." For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. And therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. But all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you open our hearts and minds today to the truth of your word, to this passage, Lord, that can be so difficult to understand. Would you just enlighten us today in the power of the Spirit and let us really take hold of the glory of your creation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So this is one of those passages that when you read it for the first time, without full proper context and understanding, you just sort of scratch your head and go, what? Angels? Shaped heads? What is this, what is this all about, right? Uh, so that's one hurdle. And the second hurdle is that this passage actually flies in the face of a very hot and contested issue within a larger anti-biblical culture war uh, that is raging today, a war that has actually been going for ages. And it is interesting that issues um, the world pushes in its own sense of like secular morality or virtue, they eventually work their way backward and wind up within the local church. We adopt the world's 
ideas of what virtue and morality is. And it's almost as if the world has a disease, and if the immune system of the church is not strong enough, we then see the symptoms of the world's disease slowly creep into the body of Christ, slowly uh, creep into the church. So what builds a strong immune system in a local church? Well, first, the church must believe 100% that God's Word is the final authority for the life of the believer. Divinely inspired, as we've spoken about the last couple weeks, it's inerrant, it is infallible, and it is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness for the believer, the follower of Christ, and for His church. It has everything we need. We need not look beyond the pages of Scripture if we want to hear from God and know the nature of God and His attributes. Second, there must be very few false converts within a local body. Uh, The ratio of wheat to tares, sheep and goats, shepherds and wolves. And if that particular local church is full of false converts, then it very simply the standard of holiness in that local church is compromised. They're going to accept things in that local church that God's Word says is unacceptable for a follower of Christ. The truth proclaimed in that local church will be compromised, and therefore the immune system of that local church will be compromised. And this means that um, local church very well could be being led by a goat in the pulpit, by a tear, by a wolf, and in that environment, truth is often declared relative, right? And then the standards of holiness within that local body are lax, as we mentioned before. And in their arrogance, there are leaders who begin to believe that the church is evolving on what we could call hot-button social issues of our day, and it doesn't really matter what God's Word says, because uh, as time changes, right, we can just tweak God's Word. We can, if it's too uncomfortable, if culture moves on, then we can just tweak God's Word or just ignore huge sections of Scripture. Uh, or it doesn't matter that Christianity in its very nature is exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. If you remember the words of Christ, only those who eat His flesh and drink His blood are true disciples. Those who obey, those who are willing to give everything for the cause of Christ are His true disciples. But apparently in most modern churches, it only matters that we are accepting of everybody. And we say things like, God loves you just the way you are. But this is a deadly eternal lie because you are solidifying people in their sin. They need to know they're not right with God, that they are wicked and that they are depraved and that they need Christ and the cross and the gospel more than anything else that they could ever imagine they would need. It is of eternal significance. So we now live in a country with major denominations that have compromised immune systems and hundreds of thousands of churches with compromised immune systems and many celebrity pastors who have the mind-blowing arrogance as to declare themselves the arbiters of truth, that they, they have the authority to change God's Word or change the way the church has operated Over the years. And so they take their own variant path and in so doing lead millions astray away from the truth of God's word. The issue Paul deals with in this passage makes God's design very clear. The question is, church, are we going to believe it? Are we going to trust God? Will we submit to God's word? Paul begins verse 2 this way. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So in spite of their issues in Corinth, and we've learned that they've had various issues with uh, immaturity, they act like spiritual babies, right? Divisions among them, choosing sides between Paul and Apollos and all of that. Paul praises them first of all because they, he says, remember him in everything. They had a healthy respect for Paul's office of apostle, and for Paul's wisdom. So they kept remembering, and this is a continual remembrance and honoring of Paul's instruction and Paul's correction for the church at Corinth. So he's praising them for that. Uh, They hold firmly 
to the traditions that were taught. And these aren't man-made traditions as it's also sometimes referred to. The Greek word here is paradosis, which means that which is passed along by teaching. That which is passed along by teaching. And the usage of this word, whether positive or negative, okay, depends upon the source of the teaching. Is it man stuff or is it God stuff? All right? If you're teaching man stuff, paradosis is used often in a negative sense in the New Testament. If you're teaching God stuff, paradosis is used in a positive sense in the New Testament. It is clear that because Paul is praising them, that they're not holding firmly to man's traditions. They're holding firmly, as Paul says, to what he has passed on to them. God-given truths given to Paul in the office of apostle. And they are honoring and even holding firmly to those God-given instructions. They have latched on to these truths with no intention whatsoever of letting go. We see in 1 Corinthians that the church did not have an issue with doctrine, but rather separating themselves from the pagan standards and the status quo morality in that wicked city of Corinth. They had an issue with coming out from among them and being separate. So just like we saw in the letter Christ wrote to the church at Ephesus, Paul here is praising their strengths before he lowers the boom and focuses in on some of their weaknesses. In their culture, there were misunderstandings about God's design and the authority between God, between men, and between women. And so the question arose, what is the role of the woman in the body of Christ? So without mincing words, without talking in circles, though it may be difficult for us to understand, given that we're in a completely separate culture than they were, Paul just flat out states the truth, the way every local church should see these particular roles in Christianity as taught in the Word of God. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. He says, I want you to understand. He says, in other words, this is precise information for, for the local church that you need to fully understand. The church has to get this right. And it's very likely that this was new information that Paul was sharing with their particular culture. Because women, in particular, in that Greek culture, were treated um, very poorly. Women were to be kept in the background. They were to be treated more like personal property, and they were often only to be used as prostitutes. And that was very often the role of women in that society. So Paul, in light of Christianity, in light of biblical truth is now correcting the culture within the church saying, I know this is the way that your culture does it, but I'm going to line you out now with new information on how women should be treated within the body of Christ. So the gospel changed that. And despite the modern framing of Christianity as an oppressive social construct, historically Christianity has been quite the opposite. Christianity has been a light in the darkness. Christianity has elevated the status of women. And this was the case here in Corinth. The gospel being introduced into their culture gave women the dignity that they deserve and elevated them to a new level of honor within society. So while Paul makes clear that men and women are equal in value, each with a created purpose in God's kingdom, they were not given the same function within God's design. And that's the important thing to understand. There's a principle that permeates all of creation. And this principle relates to authority and submission. Authority and submission. God's design works and functions together in the realm of authority and submission for His desired purpose and His desired end. So Paul describes the body of Christ in the next chapter, pointing out that each part has a purpose. The foot cannot be a hand, but is the foot more important than the hand? The ear cannot be an eye, but is the ear more important than the eye? No. Each part is designed and has its own function for the good 
of the whole body. In order for the body to work properly, each part must understand its own designed purpose and work within that function. It's pretty simple stuff. Using this principle, we can see its vital importance in the world and especially in the body of Christ. God is the head of Christ. Paul says that very clearly, that Christ submitted to God the Father. Now, imagine for a moment if Christ had decided He didn't like that and He didn't want to submit to the Father. If that were so, the redemption that was provided through Christ on our behalf would be impossible if Christ had decided to just do His own thing. If Christ had not submitted to the Father, if He had not gone to the cross, if He had not drank the cup of His Father's wrath, you and I would be eternally doomed. Fact. Christ's submission seemed to be vital in that sense when we're talking about our salvation. Would you agree? Amen. And in the same way, if an individual human being does not submit to the finished work of Christ and submit to Him as their Lord, and they are doomed for eternity. So our submission seems to be vital in that sense. Would you agree? Now, like it or not, because it's the way God has designed, if women do not submit to men in the way that God has purposed in His design and function, then eventually we will see the family break down, society disrupted, and ultimately culture and society will be completely destroyed. It'll, it'll fall to pieces. And Paul is saying whether it's a case of divine submission or whether it be a case of human submission, his design of submission and authority cannot be tossed aside without there being major consequences. These are as necessary as gravity or as sunlight. They are indispensable in our society. And Paul states, Christ is the head of every man. So if you think in terms of your body, the head is the ruling part of your body. Years ago in wrestling, we learned that where the nose goes, the head goes, and where the head goes, the body goes. All right? And that's kind of the same thing. You remove the head, and while there may be some central nervous system uh, twitching and, and convulsing, the body is dead if the head is missing. If you remove Christ, the Creator, the Lord of all, with the head gone, the entire body ceases to function. Christ said, all authority has been given to me in Matthew 28, 18. So He is the head of all things. And if you accept Christ's work and make Him your Lord, you submit to His headship, His authority, and are thereby part of His body, the church. If you reject Christ's work, though you may even do many good works, many good things, you may feed the homeless, you may uh, give to various charities, and though you are doing good things, if they are done apart from Christ, the head, the action then is dead. It is a dead work. And they amount to nothing more than the twitching and convulsions of, as we say, a chicken with its head cut off. It's just twitching and convulsions that, that has no meaning. There's no life there. There's no... because it's detached from the head, which is Christ. So in this passage, Christ submits to God the Father as His authority. Man submits to Christ as His authority. And as we see written here, the man is the head of a woman. Now, it may surprise you that this principle does not just apply to husbands and wives, but to all men and women. This is God's design. This is the way God has designed us to function. And this is the way that brings God the most glory. This is obviously admittedly, been abused and misused to manipulate and to cause great pain in people's lives, in cultures. However, just because someone wields this in a way that it was not designed for, we cannot simply throw it out and decide that, that we've got a better plan than God has. You don't, you don't make decisions in life based upon how someone has abused something that is good. You don't cut it completely out. 
you search God's word, you see what his design is, and then you use that truth, that principle properly, and life flows from that. You see, Paul here makes no distinctions between men and women as far as personal worth, as far as their abilities, their talent, their intellect, their spirituality. He doesn't, he's not putting them on different levels as far as any of that is concerned. As human beings, and spiritually speaking, women and men are on level ground. There is complete equality between men and women in the eyes of God. However, in God's created design, He has built in male authority, delegated male authority, and female submission to that authority for the purpose of order in creation as both of their functions actually perfectly complement one another if it is done according to God's design. Just as Christ's submission to the Father accomplished God's designed plan and purpose, this in no way means that Christ was inferior to God the Father. He and the Father, he says, are one. In fact, what do we see in Philippians 2? Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't need to try to attain Godhood because He was part of the Godhead. He was God. He and the Father was one. But yet He still submitted to the Father. In the same way, we work within God's established authoritative design to accomplish His will within the local church. There is no question of equality or inferiority. We do not look down on one another. Rather, we choose to submit to the authority that God has set up and the authority of His Word by submitting in the way that God has designed. So we submit to the truth of His Word. And this is why Scripture states so clearly this one social hot-button issue that pastors leading in the local church are not to be women, they're to be men. This is part of God's design. A local church may have several women who are better educated, better teachers, better public speakers than men, okay? However, if those women are obedient to God's order, they will submit to male leadership within the local church and they will not try to usurp it because they love God and they know that this is God's design and they want to honor God's design. This is also true in the family. A wife may be better educated, more spiritually mature than her husband, But because she is more spiritually mature, she will submit to her husband. As we see uh, examples in Scripture of a a wife who's actually saved and a husband who's not saved, how is it that she's instructed to win the heart of her husband to Christ? By submitting to him, by serving him, by loving him. And through that love and service, then it opens him up to the truth of the gospel. She will willingly submit to him as the spiritual head of the family, as the proper relationship between husband and wife, according to God's design as stated in Ephesians 5 that we read this morning for our uh, scripture reading. So though it may be difficult to understand, given the culture in which we've all grown up, we find that when godly men do not lead in the way God has designed, this is very interesting, then unruly youth and scornful women will follow in the wake. That's the result. And society will begin to crumble. It is an act of God's judgment, as we see in Romans chapter 1. He gives society what they want. He gives a depraved society what they ask for. That's a form of judgment. In Isaiah 3, God states as a sign of His judgment, Quoting, quoting God, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. This is, not a, this is not dogging women. This is dogging men. This is saying that men were so pathetic, they did not stand up, and, and they were not the men that God has created and called them to be. So then women had to stand up and take that place and lead in the gap where men would not lead. This statement is so clear that you have to do theological gymnastics to make it mean otherwise. In fact, Paul has connected these three together. And I want you 
to pay attention to this as some of you, uh, I mean, some of you ladies may be uncomfortable or, or bowing up at this, even this truth in Scripture, but let's connect the three, okay? Um, Christ is submissive to the Father. Men are submissive to Christ. Women are submissive to men. And He has connected them in such a way that to deny one of these statements theologically, you would have to deny all three. Do you see what He's doing there? He's saying these three are vitally important. Christ submits to God the Father. And so if you deny the one, you have to then say, well, then Christ doesn't submit to the Father or doesn't have to submit to the Father. So it's genius in His presentation of the truth here. And here's too often the issue, especially in the American mindset, we connect submission to a lack of freedom or tyranny or abuse of power, don't we? Immediately, that's what our minds go to. We almost immediately think of the negative side of submission rather than the true motive that Paul is really getting to here. And the motive, you'll be surprised to hear, is love. It's love. This, that's the motive driving this whole thing. And these three examples of godly submission. The Father sent Christ to this world out of love. Christ submitted to the Father and obeyed His Father out of love. Christ is the head over the church because He loves the church and gave His life for the church. And the bride submits, the body of Christ submits to Christ and obeys Christ because we love Him. Men then, if they are obedient, should exercise their God-given authority in love and not in an empirical, oppressive way, but in a God-given function as provider and protector. They do not exercise authority under the assumption that they are of greater worth or that they have more value or more ability or more talent, but simply because they love God and they love women and they want to honor women. And in the same way, women submitting to men is the first act of love toward the Father. I don't know if you guys have picked this up in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, but submission is all about, it doesn't matter who the middleman is. If I'm submitting to, right, he even speaks of, of slaves submitting to their masters, wives submitting to husbands. Anybody that we submit to, no matter what the context, we don't look at the middleman, our boss or our husband or whoever that middleman is, we submit as if we are serving Christ Himself. We look through the person in the middle and we do so all we do for the glory of Christ. And that's who we are submitting to. Now Paul will direct us to an example of this in action specifically in his day and more specifically in the culture of this city of Corinth. The timeless truth here as uh, we often mention this timeless truth that we're trying to get to in the passage. It's regardless of culture, our actions matter because our action should both bring honor and glory to God, but also our actions should be a crystal clear witness to everyone in the public square. So in this particular text, we're dealing with customs that they observed in their day at the church of Corinth. Look at verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying shames his head. He mentions two primary areas of ministry that every single believer, every single follower of Christ should be engaged in. That's praying and prophesying. Now, I'm not talking about the one kind of prophesying where you're, you think you're future telling, Okay. Uh, praying is talking to God about people, and prophesying is talking to people about God. So praying, we're talking to God about people, we're, we're, we're praying for those we love, we're praying for our church, we're praying for our families. It is a vertical ministry of every believer between human to God. And then prophesying is talking to people about God. It is horizontal ministry from human to human, okay? And this is our testimony, this is our witness, and this is how we clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we don't have a lot of historical data really to clarify the actual kind of head covering that they're talking about in this particular passage. But the cultural practices they were engaged in, they don't matter so much. What matters is the timeless truth, as I mentioned, that we see clearly defined in this passage. 
Whatever the cultural head coverings were, these were the standards of men. These were something that that local culture engaged in. And the truth Paul is pointing to is that regardless of the cultural standards, Christ's church first and foremost must obey the divine standards given by God and not men. Had they been doing something wrong and and doing something that was out of alignment with this timeless truth, then we would have seen Paul address it in a different way. But it just so happened uh, that this passage is in alignment with this timeless truth. The passage reads, having something on his head. It literally is translated, having down from head. So it was something that was hanging down from the head like a veil, okay? And in their culture, a veil would have been absolutely appropriate for a woman to wear during worship. But for a man, it would be a disgrace. It was a feminine uh, type of apparel that would signify something that a woman would wear and not what a man would wear. There was a built-in custom of worship in the Corinthian culture, and this custom distinguished men from women during worship, and therefore, as I said, was in alignment with this truth, with God's design. So for a man to cover his head in that culture would be a disgrace because it would be, as I said, a reversal of female and male roles that God designed. And this is and has always been a no-no, switching the roles of men and women. Remember uh, what is the divine mandate in, in any given culture. That's, that's the thrust of this whole passage. That male and female roles be kept separate according to God's design. Verse 5, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut short. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So in this day and time when this was written, a Jew considered any woman with her head shaved as extremely unattractive because it carried with it certain Uh, social realities, things that they knew to be the case. For instance, historians wrote that if a woman was actually caught in the act of adultery, in some cultures they would just stone them to death, as we see in John uh, chapter 8. But most of the time in this culture, they would just shave their head and mark them as an adulterer or they would actually send them into the occupation of prostitute. Okay, And she would have her head shaved. Feminists during this time, because the Greeks were so oppressive and they were so brutal and they, there was toxic masculinity in this culture, there were feminists during this age that would rebel against that day and they would shave their head in a sign of rebellion, okay, based on that culture. But Paul is simply saying here, if you do not want to look like a prostitute who is in sinful rebellion or an adulteress who is in sinful rebellion, or a feminist who is in sinful rebellion, then cover your head during worship while praying or prophesying, while talking to God about people or talking to people about God. You should maintain the identifying, distinguishing marks of male and female because it honors God's designed order in worship And this will maintain your witness and testimony both before men and before God. Amen? Let's continue reading as this continues to make the case regarding God's created order. Verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. So if you were to turn back to Genesis, you'll find that man was created first and that he was created in the image of God. He was created as an intelligent being with a mind, will, and emotions. All right? Man was also created to bear the image of God as he ruled within a sphere of authority under God's sovereign reign. So man acting in this authority obviously brings glory to God. Adam was created first in the image of God from the dust of the ground. And if you recall... The, the creation account, Eve was then created in the image of God, 
but she was taken out of man, out of his side, created from his rib. And that is what this next verse is referencing. Quote, But the woman is the glory of man, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So as man was created first to function as God's authority and execute God's will on the earth, woman was made to function and be a helpmate, Genesis says, of man. And within God's design to help the man be fruitful and multiply. He can't do it himself. He needs her. So before the fall, there was this perfect complementary relationship within the family. But what do we see after the fall? What do we see take place when sin entered the world? Well, it introduced an unfortunate consequence of man's sinful nature. Look, or You can jot down Genesis 3, 16 and 17. You can go back there and look later if you want. I'll quote it. But God says to the woman, to Eve, quote, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So this is not talking about a physical desire. It's talking about your desire will be for your husband's authority, this delegated authority that God gave Adam. Woman will then want that authority, and she will strive to rule over the man. So the fall introduced this female desire to usurp that God-given authority. Uh, But God stated, even in that moment, that you will never attain it. And and I don't know, I, I think about this I feel bad for all these ladies who work so hard in, in uh, athletics like the swimming team and stuff and then you have the, the transgender uh, biological men that come in and compete against the girls and they just blow them away. And, and you think about this and you think about how God Himself said your desire is going, to, is going to have that authority, is essentially to be on top, but you will not attain it. Isn't it interesting in a culture how it gets to such a degree that once women almost attain this, all of a sudden men decide they want to be women and then they start winning all of these sporting events. Verse 9, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. As God intended it to be, woman was not only created from man, but the Bible says God that woman was created for man. She is not inferior to Him. I want you to hear me. Woman is unique. She is set apart from man. Her function within her role is to come under the umbrella of the authority of man as He protects her, He provides for her, and she does the same in her own unique way for Him. He cares for her, and she is to be a helper suitable for Him. Quoted from Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. Now in verse 10, Paul returns to his former application, regardless of the culture, our actions should reflect God's designed roles for male and female in the role of authority and submission. Verse 10, therefore a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And when you first read this, you're thinking, what in the world does this mean? Well, there's a great explanation once you study it out. In Scripture, angels are powerful, created spiritual beings. The most powerful created beings, as we know that uh, the Elohim, as we've studied in the past, these spiritual beings, we know that Satan was the highest order, the, the anointed cherub that covers. These are mighty beings, but they keep that great power in complete and total submission and obedience to God. Now, we, of course, we know that there was the fall originally of these beings, these angelic beings who, who uh, rebelled against God, but then God locked it in. And every angel that is the Lord's now is going to remain the Lord's for eternity. And so He locked it in the same way as when we step out of this life into eternity, whether we've accepted Him or rejected Him, that's locked in for eternity. The angels are powerful. They're majestic beings. But they still submit to God according to God's design. And in the same way, women are beautiful and they are gifted and they are the crowning jewel of creation. And because of that, when a woman chooses to submit first to Christ and then submit to men, 
she's living within God's design and she's bringing utmost glory to God in her life. In addition, angels were there as eyewitnesses of, of physical creation. They saw how God designed and ordered the physical creation with authority and submission. And the Bible tells us that they are the, protect, the protectors of Christ's church. They stand guard over God's elect. They are the mightiest beings created, as I said. So in turn, their submissiveness is an act of great meekness. And I don't know if you guys remember, we learned what meekness was. It's great strength that's held in check. It's, it's sub submitted to Christ. That's what meekness is. Christ was the perfect example of meekness. He was Almighty God in man's flesh who submitted to the Father. And what did He say? Blessed are the meek. When you have great power and great worth, but yet you choose as service to Christ to submit to Christ, ladies, that is a beautiful thing. And men do so to Christ Himself. So, alternately, when a woman seeks to usurp the created order of God, or man seeks to overturn the created order God has designed, it is said that the angels take offense to that as witnesses and guardians over God's created order. In fact, an ancient commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures called the Midrash taught that angels were the guardians of God's created order. Now, we know that's not inspired Scripture, but that's what they believed back then and could possibly have been what Paul was referencing here. I wonder, though, if, if that is true, how these holy angels feel as being witnesses to creation and God's designed order. I wonder how they actually feel right now during the midst of, of like Pride Month, right? When we see all of the stuff going on. I wonder what they must be thinking as, as it continues to progress or deviate from God's design. Continuing in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. But all things originate from God. What a great statement. The great equalizer, right? A statement that confirms the equality of both men and women. Because man has been given delegated authority by God. It is not because he is better or of more value than a woman. It is wrong and ungodly to be a feminist, but it is also wrong and ungodly to be a chauvinist. Women should not exist without, or women would not exist without men, this is telling us, but men could not exist without women. Uh, women. It's a circular existence, right? The two sexes are interdependent upon one another, and most assuredly, neither gender could even exist without God. So people tend to get all bent out of shape when this type of subject matter is taught because immediately, as I said before, they almost always go directly to the worst case scenarios in their mind. Again, God has delegated authority to the man, especially in the local church. We see this, this issue raging amongst the church in major denominations. As a matter of fact, just so uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention last week, women scripturally are not to teach men. Women are not to pastor men. However, I want you to listen to me for a moment and really listen to what I'm about to say. Women are perhaps the most influential shapers of real men. Mothers have a unique and indispensable role in shaping young men, young boys to become godly men. And if they do that properly. That little boy will grow up with his hearts with hearts in his eyes for his mama and he's going to know how to respect women. He's going to know how to serve and love women. And fathers have the responsibility to be an example to their boys and using their God-given delegated authority not in a toxic way, but using it unselfishly in gentleness and in love. When mothers and fathers live within the confines of God's perfect created design, children will grow up feeling secure, which is what they really need. They need to know that the rug's not going to be yanked out from under them someday when they're seven and mom and dad decided they don't love each other anymore, right? 
kids need security. They need to feel safe within the built-in protection of God's design of the family. And here's the thing. Healthy and secure families make healthy and secure local churches. It extends to the body of Christ. Churches that protect their public witness so as to share the gospel in a powerful and uncompromised way. If you compromise the truth of God's Word, if you compromise God's design, you cannot be a witness for Christ. Continuing in verse 13, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does, it not, even, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. Well, these verses, once again, point out that even in nature, we recognize certain traits between masculine men and feminine women, and they are decidedly masculine and feminine. We know when we look at a man and a woman, there are visible differences. There are outliers. A man can be super-duper masculine. He can lean more, uh, more or less masculine, and same thing with women, so it doesn't mean that, (coughs) excuse me, it doesn't mean that all men are supposed to be exactly the same and all women are supposed to be exactly the same. There are ranges and variables in all of that within God's design. But the way a woman dresses should reflect God's natural creation. They should be distinctively feminine. Modest, as Scripture teaches, but most definitely feminine, and this includes the hair and all, while a male within a culture should be distinctively masculine. So guys, let me use an example here. If you're in the U.S., I would suggest as your pastor to not wear a skirt to church, okay? However, let's take an example of cultural norms. If you're in Scotland, they wear skirts and they're called kilts and they are decidedly masculine, all right? And so in Scotland, you may show up to church and there may be men in kilts and that's perfectly acceptable. But in their culture, that's decidedly a distinction between male and female. You do it here, then you're mixing. It's a role reversal of the sexes. Do you all understand that? It's pretty simple, right? All right. So, again, this honors God's created order and brings Him glory. And any attempt at blurring those lines does the exact opposite. Finally, let's look at verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Very simply put, what Paul is saying here is that if someone wants to argue with God's created order, no matter who you are, if you want to find a sympathetic ear to agree with you in your dissent against what the Bible says, he's saying you will not find one apostle or one leader among the churches that will agree with you in your disagreement about what Scripture says. And oh, how I wish that were the case today. Amen? In summation, in this passage, Paul establishes that women are to be submissive to men, number one, because of the relationship of the Godhead. He gives us that example. As Christ submitted to the Father, as men submit to Christ, women submit to men. Two, the divine design of male and female. Three, the order of creation. Number four, the unique role of women. Number five, the interest of the angels. And number six, the characteristics of natural male and female biology. And this should settle any argument within the body of Christ. It should be something upon which the local church stands firm and never compromises. And this is where it all boils down. If you compromise these things, if you give in these areas... It's a slippery slope. It is a slow fade into the dark abyss. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've been around 47 years now. I still consider myself a young pup, okay? But I look at the church. and Hey, too much laughing going on over there. I look at the church in the last 40 years from the time I was a kid, and I grew up in the church as far back as I can remember, My dad was a pastor, and I've seen the church go through several stages. And I have seen this slow fade 
grow exponentially in the last 10 to 15 years. The center cannot hold. If we abandon biblical truth, things will begin to crumble. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And I don't know if you guys notice, but it's not just in the body of Christ. But out there in the world, things are beginning to fall apart. I believe the return of Christ is soon. However, let me focus you on our purpose as the body of Christ. We do not run, and run for the hills and hide. We don't stare at the sky with our bags packed waiting for Jesus to show up. We should live in the imminency of Christ's return. We should expect that, but that should light a fire under our rear ends to get out there and share the gospel and to preach the uncompromising truth to a world that is desperately in need of the cross and the salvation of Jesus Christ. They need Christ. And you and I don't know which ones will reject Him and which ones will accept Him and follow Him. So guess what? Our job is to tell everybody we can. All creation. That's our job as the church. So yes, we can get excited about the great consummation, about the new heaven and the new earth, about Christ coming back and, and, and setting up His kingdom and finally bringing justice and, and, and crushing the enemy under His feet and all those who would do evil, uh, child trafficking and, and rape and murder and, and addiction and all these things He will deal with once and for all. And we can long for those things but let us not lose sight of what God has called us to do as the body of Christ. That's to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and love one another in this local church. And I'm going to talk with you more about how, as I see things changing out there, we can prepare and be ready, at least a local church, as a local church, we can be ready to love one another, serve one another, and provide for one another in the context of the local church if things begin to fall apart out there. And that's some of the things that we'll be talking about over the next several months. But look, folks, it's all about our witness. It's all about our testimony. We have to hold true to the Word of God. Amen? Let's be strong. If everybody else falls, though none go with us, we still will follow. Amen? Let's pray.